You know, that makes Christianity absolutely unique in this way. God is completely transcendent. He is, exists outside of us. He's the creator who rules the heavens and earth. But he is also completely imminent, meaning he lives in us by his spirit through faith in Jesus. God is personal and relational through his spirit. We are never alone. He's always with us. That's reflected in the name Jesus gave to the Spirit in John, variously translated as advocate or helper or companion. He comes alongside of us to walk with us through life. No other religious belief system defines God this way as both transcendent and eminent. Either he is transcendent, unknown, up there, or either he is eminent and he lives within us, but not both. That makes the God of Scripture is completely unique. The Holy Spirit is described as the power of God in some places. He's called the Spirit of Truth and bears witness to the truth of God. Last week, we saw the Spirit which described as the Spirit of adoption as sons bearing witness that we are children of God, adopted into God's family. This week, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Life. You saw that underlined in our text. You know, all those names point to just how encompassing and how essential the Spirit is to our lives as Jesus' followers. Where are we getting a knocking from? <laughs> Often, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we only focus on a few aspects of the Spirit's work. The power, what it means to be filled with the Spirit, the spiritual gifts. Chris, maybe just turn me down just a hair, see if that reduces the knocking. So in many ways, Francis Chan was right when he wrote this book about the Holy Spirit entitled, The Forgotten God. We typically don't appreciate and fully understand just how important and how foundational the Holy Spirit is to our lives in this world today as followers of Jesus. You know, in our text today, Paul describes the Spirit. You know what? The, the thing that says computer sound, since we're not using a song, turn that off. Maybe that's where the knocking is coming from. <laughs> in our text today, Paul describes the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of life. You know, this is one of those more difficult texts in Scripture to understand. Paul in Romans is probably the most theological book of, of all the books in Scripture. You know, if you go home and read this text, you'll probably look at it and scratch your head and say, okay, what is Paul really saying here? What's meaning? You know, and if you read any commentaries on this text, it gets even more confusing listening to people try to explain it. <laughs> now, I am sure there are some pastors out there that, Christian leaders who can better explain this chapter than me. But just so you understand, I, I spent most of Monday reading and, and reading, reading these scriptures. And through the first seven chapters of Romans up to this point, chapter 8, Paul never talks about the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 8, he talks about the Holy Spirit in, in every connection. You know, before that he talks about law, sin, and why Jesus died on the cross. But then in 8 he talks about the Spirit all through the chapter, basically telling us we cannot live as followers of Christ without the Spirit being at work in our lives. He's absolutely necessary. In John chapter 10, Jesus talks about being a good shepherd. And what that means for us, and in the middle of the chapter he sums up all that he says when he says this, that I've come to give us life, a life that is full and meaningful, a life that's characterized by a sense of wholeness and peace, a life that's abundant, bringing purpose and satisfaction. 
And in these verses, Paul today calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of life. So it's important that we have an appreciation of what these verses in chapter 8 are talking about because it's really the foundation for how we find that life and continue to experience it. And so Paul begins the chapter with one of the most powerful statements you'll hear anywhere about following Jesus in scriptures. He says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is one of the most definitive and one of the most powerful statements we'll find about the benefits of what it means to be a Christ follower. You know, so often the English words that translate the Greek don't really catch the full power of what is being said. If you read some of the more modern translations or paraphrases of that verse, instead of condemnation, it'll say there's no judgment or punishment. What Paul is saying is that if you've committed to following Jesus, no matter what you have done, you will not be judged or punished by God at the end of your life or the final judgment when Jesus returns. God declares us not guilty. We will not be punished for all the wrong, the hurt, the pain that we have done throughout our lives. That's an amazing statement. And then the word for no is all-inclusive. It doesn't just apply to what we did before we came to faith in Christ. It applies to everything we have done, everything we will do now, today, or everything we will do in the future. It applies to everything in life right up to the moment we die. You think about that. That is an amazing statement. But that is the promise that God makes when we commit to following Jesus. We're forgiven. We don't have to carry any guilt. We don't have to worry, won't be judged by God. You know, that is the Spirit's job. So he's saying the Spirit's job there is to remind us and bring an incredible sense of freedom to us, which is the foundation for real life, that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Paul declares in the very next verse, in verse 2, he says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. So the first thing this text is telling us is that the Spirit of life brings a new freedom to our lives. Now, many people will think, and you may think that's too good to be true, that God will never judge or condemn us. In this world in which we live, it is too good to be true. You know, if, today, if you say anything wrong on social media or you said something wrong in the past, it comes up. No matter how long ago it is, and the world judges you. Now, over the last five, ten years, I've become a fan of, of international soccer. Of, and, and Greg Berthalter, who coached the U.S. men's national team in, in the latest World Cup, um, his contract was finished in January. And he was hoping to be reappointed as coach. But during the World Cup, one of the players didn't play as much as he expected, and his parents acted just like the parents of youth leagues everywhere. He complained that his, their son wasn't playing enough in the World Cup. And in fact, these, his parents were actually friends of Greg Birdhalter from college all the way through. The father and Greg played on soccer teams together. But they went to U.S. soccer and, 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 and told a story about him. 
that when Greg was dating his wife in college over 25 years before, they had an argument. And, and, and at that point in time, he let his anger get away from him and apparently kicked his wife. And so now U.S. soccer is investigating him to determine whether or not he should be appointed coach again. Now, what they did say was that after that incident, he got counseling for his anger, and he and his wife have been happily married for 25 years. But the world out there is still judging him for something that happened 25 years ago. That happens all the time in our world. Things we say or people do will be brought up time and time again. But that is not how God works. You know, to, what is, to understand what is absolutely amazing about Paul's declaration is that there is no condemnation or judgment to those who are in Christ Jesus. You have to kind of go back to um, chapter 7 and see what Paul says there. And I encourage you to go home and, and read chapter 7. In chapter 7, Paul says this, and he's speaking towards the end of his life. He's speaking after he has been following Christ for, for many decades. And he says this. He talks about the internal struggle debate that he has within himself. And he says this, I know what is right to do, but so often I'm able to do, unable to do it even when I want to. The good that I want to do, I don't. And the evil I don't want to do, I so often end up doing it. Paul is being incredibly honest there. And, and what he's basically saying is true. The more we know about Jesus and how God wants us to live, the more we realize just how far from it our human nature is, no matter how long we've been following Jesus. So Paul, at the end of his life, is saying, look, I, you know, I know who God is and what he expects, and I realize just how far I can be from that. And so the more we know Jesus, the more we recognize the evil and selfish nature that resides within each of us. That there is a struggle between what we know is right and between our own natural desires, which are often selfish and lead to great wrong. And so there's this struggle between good and evil within each one of us, if we're truly being honest. And yet despite the reality of that struggle, Paul comes out then in, in, in the first verse of eight, Romans 8, he says, therefore, therefore, looking at everything I've struggled with in my life, he says, there is, when we put our faith in Jesus, God will never judge or condemn us again. That is amazing. Do you understand how amazing that is? And what that really means for our lives today. Now, does freedom mean that we can go out there and do whatever we want, even if it's wrong, because we know we won't be judged? So faith in Jesus becomes one of the best life insurance policies you can ever have? No, of course not. Paul asked that very question in chapter 6. He, he, he asked the rhetorical question, should we just continue to sin to do wrong and else selfishly so God's grace would be poured out on us? No, because if that is our response, then we don't really understand what God and Jesus have done for us at the cross. John tells us in his letter of 1 John that as followers of Jesus, we will continue to do wrong things. We will continue to struggle with our own selfishness and evil within us. But he says that if we confess, God forgives, and, and, and so God, what we can do in our lives, we can continue to experience God's presence and peace in our lives. God knows we're not perfect and we'll never be perfect, but yet in his eyes, we are completely forgiven because of what Jesus did. Now, if we continue to do that and we don't, confess, then we won't experience the peace and freedom that God wants us to experience in this life. 
even though we will be found not guilty at the final judgment because of our faith in Christ. And, and that freedom implies several things for us. That freedom means that we'll be emotionally free to be honest with ourselves, with God, and with other people we interact with. We can say, I am a sinner. Now, in today's world, we think that's a terrible thing to say. People say, that's a terrible thing to say. But it's not a terrible thing to say when we can also say that we are loved and completely accepted and forgiven by God. In fact, it's an incredibly healthy thing to say because then we can admit when we're wrong that we're capable of acting very selfishly, we're capable of evil. We don't have to cover it up who we really are. We don't have to pretend everything is okay and right. It brings a real emotional and psychological freedom to how we deal with life in ourselves and how we look at ourselves. And that also brings another sense of freedom to our relationships and interactions with other people because it brings a sense of humility. You know, we have a new freedom to deal with other people. We can't divide the world into good and evil anymore because we know that we are all capable of evil. And the reason that maybe we haven't done some of the things others have done because of the grace of God in our lives. There go I except for the grace of God. We can no longer point fingers at other people and say they're evil because if we understand our situation, our lives, we know that we're capable of the same thing. And just as we're no longer judged, we find the freedom not to judge others ourselves, realizing that's God's responsibility and not ours. That kind of freedom brings real life and changes the nature of our relationships with everyone. It's that kind of freedom that leads Jesus to say, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you. Don't judge. Because we're all in the same boat. The spirit of life brings freedom. Next, Paul points out to us, the spirit of life reminds us of a new power at work in us. You know, Paul writes about two kinds of law in our text today. This is where he gets a little confusing. He says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You know, when we think about law, we usually associate it with a set of rules or a set of do's and don'ts, what we should do and what we shouldn't do. I mean, the Ten Commandments is the classic example. It's a set of do's and don'ts. We should honor our father and mother. We should not worship any other gods or commit murder or adultery. And there is within us this human nature. When we're told not to do something, we often think about, what would happen if we do it? We see this in kids all the time, little kids. Don't do this. <laughs> and what do they do? At some point, they instinctively want to try it. it, it it's just it's a picture of our human nature. And, and so maybe we think the law is arbitrary and God just wants to keep us from having something good and fun. Or we want to see how far we can push it. And that's just our human nature, our propensity to do what is wrong. And so what Paul is saying here, so even though the law is good, God was telling us in the law the best and healthiest way to live in this life with each other. That law could not create in us the desire 
to obey it and to do what is right. Our own human nature, our own desire to act selfishly and do what is wrong made the law a stumbling block for us that showed us how wrong we were and it weighed us down with guilt and shame. And that brings condemnation and judgment. So Paul points out in verse 3 when he says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What he was saying is the law became a stumbling block rather than a source of life. The law was supposed to point to us the best way to live, the healthiest way to live. But because of our nature, it became a stumbling block that pointed out where we failed, that pointed out guilt and shame to us. So the law of the spirit of life does something very different. It reminds us and points us back to what Jesus did rather than making us feeling guilty and condemned and judged. Paul goes on to say in, in the rest of verses 3 and 4, he says this, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So what he's saying is, the Spirit's job is to continually remind us that God loves us so much that Jesus came into the world and lived just like us, facing the same temptations that we do, but who never made the wrong choice, never sinned. He always obeyed the letter and the spirit of God's law. And because he was completely obedient, he fulfilled the requirements of the law and therefore could stand in for us and pay the penalty that we all deserved. He paid it at the cross. God sees us as completely innocent. So it's the Spirit's job to continue to remind us of the new power that has been released in our lives through what Jesus did at the cross. We're loved. We're no longer judged or condemned. We're welcomed into God's family, adopted as sons, just with all the privileges and rights God gives to Jesus. That's the foundation of how we live as followers of Jesus. And so Paul tells us that that brings a new power to our lives because he says the power that raised Jesus from the dead will also bring new life to us. In verse 11 he says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you saying the same power that raised Jesus from the dead resides in us and brings new life to us. You know, why do you think the early church, whenever they gathered, celebrated the Lord's Supper? Because it's the heart of the Christian faith. It's the visible demonstration of God's love. It's the reminder that we are forgiven and accepted by God. We no longer have to live with guilt or shame. You know, Sometimes Christians kind of, it's easy for us to kind of say to ourselves, yeah, I know all that. <laughs> or pastor, I know I'm forgiven. Tell me something new I don't know. But we have to understand if that's how we're thinking, then we don't really understand or appreciate the full significance of the gospel. That is the heart of the faith. The Spirit's job is to drive that truth home to us, that each and every moment of our lives, no matter what is going on with us, that the Spirit, God, is with us. 
that we are forgiven, that He walks with us through life, that, you know, and, and, so, and so He, when that truth is rooted in us, we will continually want to sing God's praises. We'll want to know Him more and get to know Him more because of what He's done. We'll want everyone around us to know Jesus and His incredible sacrifice He made for everyone. How we approach God reveals to us how well we truly understand the gospel and what Jesus did for us. And when the gospel grabs us that way, we live in the freedom God meant for us. We'll find that life that God intended for us. So Paul describes the spirit as the spirit of life. Why? First, the spirit of life brings a new freedom to our lives. We can be honest with ourselves. We're free to deal and accept other people just as they are. Secondly, the Spirit reminds us of a new power at work within us. That what Jesus did at the cross, no matter what we do or what happens to us in this life, the Spirit reminds us that we're unconditionally loved, accepted, forgiven by God. We don't have to prove ourselves to anyone at all. We're totally accepted by God. Finally, the Spirit of life invites us to a new approach for living. Now, Paul here is not teaching us a simple technique or a formula. You know, if you just do this one little thing, then we'll be blessed. Rather, he is saying to us that we have to embrace a comprehensive way of thinking about God and about life. Listen to verse 5 and 6 of our text. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now, these verses are not talking about willpower. It's not a case of I'm going to make myself think the right way and do the right things. You know, have you ever thought that way about something? You know, what do we all do? You know, we might think for an hour, a day, a week, maybe a month, and what do we do? We go back to our old habits. You know, why is, you know, everybody says, I'm going to exercise, so they buy a piece of exercise equipment for the home. And what happens? Within a month, it's usually collecting dust. I mean, you go on, on Facebook Marketplace or elsewhere, you see exercise equipment being sold all the time. Same thing with diets. After the first of the year, you know, after the holiday, everybody says, I'm going to lose weight. And they go on a diet. What happens for a week, maybe a month? And they go back to old habits. Paul in chapter 7 told us that willpower didn't help him. It's not willpower he's talking about here. Something much deeper has to take place. To appreciate what Paul is teaching here, I think we have to understand what the terms flesh and mind really mean. When Paul uses the term flesh, he is not referring to our physical bodies. The flesh refers to anything that we want to make the most important things in our lives that is not about Jesus. That's what the flesh is referring to here. Anything that we want to make the most important in our lives that is not about Jesus. What do we actually worship? What brings meaning to my life that justifies my existence? If it's not Jesus, then it's coming from the flesh. Now, there are many good things that God has given us in this life that we are meant to enjoy, but they become problems when they become our focus in the meaning of our lives because they weren't meant to provide that. 
It refers, you know, so the flesh, there are many good things. You know, what we do for our lives. We make our children our focus. We make our spouses our work, the acquisition of power, a wealth, a hobby, a cause we might fight for, a political agenda we believe in, what other people think about us. Maybe we just live for our own pleasure, whatever feels good to us. But when those things become our primary driving force in life that makes our existence worthwhile, Paul is saying you're living according to the flesh. So Paul talks about setting our minds on the flesh or on the spirit. So when we use the term mind today, we usually think, we, we usually mean, you know, we say it's just what I'm thinking about at the moment. When we say our heart, we're thinking about our emotions. But when Paul uses the term heart or mind, he's basically referring to everything that we value most in life. You know, what drives us? What's the center of our being? What do we dream about thinking if we could do this or have this, that our lives will be complete and we'd be satisfied? In essence, that thing becomes our own savior. It becomes the reason for our existence. So if we want to find a life and peace God intended for us, we have to make a choice. What will we make our priority? Will I set my mind and heart on Jesus or will I set it on something else, whatever it may be? And so Paul makes very clear in the, in the last verse of our text that if we set our heart and mind on anything other than Jesus, we will be disappointed. It will not bring the life and lasting satisfaction we desire. In fact, it will often bring great pain to our lives when it's taken from us or we'll do things to get what we want that will bring great trouble to ourselves and others. You know, the classic example of this truth is clearly portrayed in the 1981 movie, Chariots of Fire. If you haven't seen it, I encourage you to go home and watch it. You can probably find it on almost any streaming service. It's a story of two British sprinters, Eric Liddell and Harold Abramson, who both won gold medals in the 1924 Olympics in Paris, France. Each of them set their minds and hearts on two very different things. Eric Liddell, was a Christian who eventually followed his parents as a missionary to China. He died in China towards the end of World War II in a prison camp there. Eric Liddell, if you, if you saw him, he had a very unorthodox running style, which we only saw in one scene in the movie, in the scene where he was running against free runners, French runners before the Olympics. He was knocked down, he fell way behind. And he runs this frantic race to catch up and when he's running that frantic race, his arms are flailing like this. He's looking up to the sky, his mouth is open. He's running the way no sprinter ever runs or is trained to run. Now, his daughter, Jenny Lindell, was alive when the movie, was still alive when the movie was published, uh, put out for viewing in 1981. And she did an interview. And, and one of the things she said, one of the things they got wrong in the movie was that they only saw it in one scene, but that's how he ran every race. <laughs> Arms failing, looking up, mouth open. That's how he always ran. Why, she said? Because he was worshiping God when he was running. At one point, Eric explains to his sister why he wants to run in the Olympics. She wanted him to go to China and thought the Olympics were a distraction for him. And so he says to her, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. 
So he was running to glorify God. You know, if he didn't win a race, it was okay. He just did it in the best. It wasn't about him. And for a while, it appeared that he wouldn't run in the Olympics because he refused to run the 100-meter uh, um, pre-races on Sunday. But for him, he was to honor the Lord on the Sabbath, so he wouldn't run. And, and he was perfectly okay with it. It wasn't the end of the world for him. You know, in fact, you know, because his heart and mind was set on the things of the Spirit, not on something else. So his identity as a person wasn't at stake here. In fact, you know, so there was always a sense of peace and life about him. And he confounded everyone around him because he was always so gracious to everyone. You know, he was gracious to those who were critical of him for his beliefs and not running. And he was, you know, he'd, he'd run the race and he'd go up and greet all the other sprinters and runners and say, wish him good luck. <laughs> Why? Because it wasn't about him. It was about he was running for God and, and he reflected that value in how he treated everyone. Harold Abramson was the exact opposite. He was running to justify his own existence. You know, at one point he says that when he was at the starting block and looking down the track, he felt this, I have only 10 seconds to justify my earthly existence. If he lost, he lost all meaning for life. When he lost a pre-race before the Olympics to Eric Liddell, he was absolutely crushed. He was depressed. He was moody. He was obnoxious to everyone around him because he lost. He lost his reason for existence. He lost his reason for why he lived. And even after he won the gold medal in the 100 meters at the Olympics, he wasn't really satisfied and content. Why? because it was just a momentary thing. Now he had to find something else to do. And so the whole story of his life was that he had to continually driven to prove himself one way or the other. He always had to prove himself that he was the best at everything. It was an unrelenting drive that drove him. And when it was taken away, it was lost. That's the perfect picture of what it means when Paul wrote, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. If we want to find true life and peace, then we have to make the choice to set our minds on the things of the spirit, to make Jesus first in our lives, our main priority, our reason for existence. And that's not a one-time choice. That is, has to be a day-by-day -day choice. We make every morning you know, it doesn't mean that we don't love and value our spouses, our family, our work, our hobbies, our causes, and many other things in this life. But it does mean all those other things are approached in a different way. They don't have to provide us ultimate meaning. They weren't designed to do that. God gave them to us to enjoy, but not to provide ultimate meaning for who we are as people. So we can enjoy them without laying that extra burden on them. Making Jesus first will enhance the value of those other things. We may appreciate them more. We don't have to provide something they were never designed to provide. It doesn't mean we don't have our ups and downs in this process. Paul is very clear in, in, in Romans 7 that he was up and down. He struggled with it. 
But he still, he knew that he was eternally loved and accepted by God. When we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. We're free from guilt and shame. Nothing can take that away from us. We have the Spirit of God in us reminding us what is right and true. We have the Spirit of God in us reminding us that we're adopted into God's families as his privileged children. We're heirs to all the promise God made in Jesus. We have the Spirit of God reminding us that there's no condemnation or judgment in Christ Jesus. Nothing in this world can take those things away. Everything else in this life we may set our minds and hearts on can disappear, can be taken away, can disappoint us. And when that happens, it can be devastating. It seems to me, as Paul is explaining it, as followers of Jesus, the best choice we can ever make, and really the only healthy choice, is to set our minds on the Spirit, on what Jesus did for us. Do you understand why the Holy Spirit is so important to our lives as followers of Jesus? Doesn't it make sense to start each day by pausing and asking the Spirit to lead and direct my life each day? Open my mind to hear His voice as I read the Scriptures daily. To ask for wisdom throughout the day in all the situations we face. You know, Jesus says the exact same thing that Paul invites us to in, in Romans 8 when he says this in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He's saying the exact same thing. He says this, take my yoke. Meaning, set your mind on the things of this here. Set your mind on what I've done for you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's the same invitation Paul is making to us in this text today. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Set your mind on Jesus, and you'll find life, freedom, rest, and peace. That's a choice we have to make each and every day. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for what you've done for us in Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the freedom that you desire to bring. And Lord, like Paul, we're all very frail and people. We're easily sidetracked. We're easily caught off guard. We easily get caught up in various things, and we struggle with choices, and, and, and we get caught up in various interests that pull us away from where you want us to be. I thank you so much, Father, that you've provided everything we, we need for life, that you have given all these other good gifts to us to enjoy because you want us to enjoy the life you've given. But more than anything, we thank you that you have given us your son Jesus because in him we find our true identity and our true hope. We find uh, the true freedom in life that you meant to give us. So I pray, Father, that you would just root in each one of us in a deeper way just how much you have done for us and how much you desire to set us free. And Father, that this amazing thing that there is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment, no guilt, no shame to those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, may you just root that in our lives. And may we just continue to give you thanks and praise all the days of our lives for what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to sing a, a song that really talks about